Paul the Apostle introduces him once again as a prisoner for the Lord. That's how he styles himself. He did not become a prisoner of a rabbi from Galilee by accident. He became a prisoner of Jesus Christ through the intervention of God in his life, as have you. So we are now prisoners of the Lord Jesus, having been captured by him and are his own. And as we come to this passage, we're looking at how he intends for us to live. This is a life worthy of the calling you have received. And what we're talking about here are not running boards and mud flaps for that pickup. This is the frame and the engine, all right? This is the center. What we see in these first two verses, this is the summary of the Christian life. And the rest of chapters 4, 5, and 6, the apostle unpacks all that is in these words, these powerful words that he uses to describe what it means to live a life worthy of the calling that we have received. And because we are prisoners of the Lord Jesus and we belong to him, these are not optional. These are not accessories. This is not if you'd like to practice these things. So what is it then to live a life worthy of the calling you have received? It is verse 2, which summarizes all he intends to tell us in the next three chapters, which is be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. This is to be the style of your life in the world. This is what it means to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Not that the world supposes that this is a victorious or successful life. We're not checking with the worldly authorities on this. This is Jesus who tells us to be humble. Be completely humble and gentle. Be completely humble and gentle. Jesus himself said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It was The writers who described him as the gentle one. Here comes the Messiah, gentle and humble and riding on a donkey. From the prophetic word all the way to the New Testament, we discover that the Lord Jesus was interjecting into his world this notion that humility is a successful, godly way to live. And it is a framework for you as you live out your life. Humble ought to describe who you are as a follower of Jesus. Be all humble and gentle. The Greeks did not see humility as a virtue. Many Christians question what it actually means. I mean, what does it mean to be humble? Humility is not the opposite of courage. It includes courage. It's not the opposite of decisiveness. It includes decisiveness. It includes being assertive when you need to be assertive. But humility is following the Lord Jesus in putting your focus on the other person. Just as Jesus lived out his life caring for those around him, caring for those in need, seeking to do the Father's will, So we too are to focus on the other, not taking care of our own needs first, but the priority is the other's 
needs, as Paul the Apostle described it. This is humility. Why would a person be humble? What would cause us to be humble? Jesus is the example. He left us this example of humility that we are to follow. Why would a person be humble? Number one, there there are two reasons, okay? And there are two things that pertain to every person on the planet, whether they recognize it or not. Not everybody does recognize it, all right? So the two things I'm about to tell you are things that are embedded in this book and in the teachings of Jesus. Not everybody agrees with them. Number one, every good thing you have is a gift from God. All right? That's the first. That undergirds all humility. Everything I have is a gift from God. There are people who suppose that they are self-made men, as if they had a hand in planning their own DNA. How many of you had a hand in planning your genetic code? Not a one of us did. That is a gift, right? And it's a marvelous gift. All of the capabilities and faculties that we have are gifts. We didn't earn them. We didn't deserve them. There's nothing we did in order to get this genetic code that made makes us who we are. That is a gift from the Father above, the Creator God, who fearfully and wonderfully made us in our mother's womb, the psalm says. And it's true about you and it's true about me. So as I go about in the world, if I can think of myself as receiving everything that I have from a good God who gives good gifts, then that's part of the basis for my humility. The good gifts of God include His salvation, His wonderful presence in my life, and His salvation, which leads to the second truth that pertains to everybody in the world. Number one is, every good thing comes from God, and number two is, we are all sinners in need of a rescue. Everyone is a sinner. We are broken fundamentally on the inside. This is something that we teach at our church and believe because the Scripture says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. This universal sinfulness of the human race is taught again and again in Scripture. So as I'm going about my way on the planet, there are two things that I believe with every breath I take. Number one is this breath is a gift from God. I didn't make the oxygen. I didn't create the DNA. It's all a gift from God. And number two, I'm a sinner. And Jesus had to rescue me. I am fundamentally flawed, unable to save myself until Jesus comes to save me. And so this mode of humility on the planet, how to live a life worthy, begins with this big word, be completely humble. Drayton McLean, I've mentioned him to you before, a very successful businessman who designed the grocery stores that you use when you go to Walmart. He was a grocer in Texas, bought out completely by Walmart and was a vice president there. I asked him one time, what is the secret of your success, Drayton? I remember the moment when I asked him this and he said, really, it was being at the right place at the right time. You know, God's good gifts. You were born in the United States, many of you. 
And that in itself was a great gift. Now we have many who are born in other places. But think of the marvelous thing of American citizenship. What it means in finance and health care, opportunity, employment. You had nothing to do with it. You didn't choose it. No way you could have had any influence on it. Humility is recognizing every good thing is a gift from God. And I myself in broken in need of a savior. That's what humility is built upon. Now, be completely humble is a mindset, a disposition, a way of approaching the world. Focusing on the other instead of myself. Caring for his needs instead of my own. Like Jesus did. Following the example of Jesus who said, the greatest among you must be servant of all. I know it's turned upside down. I know the world doesn't say this is how you ought to live. But this is not optional for us. This is part of the framework of our life in the world. Be completely humble. And the second word is gentle. And the word gentle sort of puts into motion the humility of mind and heart. So gentleness is a way that we are to be in the world. Jesus himself is described as gentle. Now, gentleness is not weakness, nor is humility weakness. We are talking about strength. Gentleness, Barry Ash defined for me this week, is strength under control. Sometimes the word was used to describe the draft animals that they used in the first century. Have you ever seen an oxen plowing a field? How many of you have seen that? Where there was an oxen actually? All right, I've seen that. I don't see anybody in the room that's ever seen that. I've seen it. There are. We got one. Okay. <laughs> I mean, that ox could take off and run, but he uses his strength in the way that his master wants him to. I found this picture of the largest bovine in the world. His name is Chili. You know how tall he is? Six foot six. All right? He's a foot taller than your average cow. He weighs two, uh, 2,800 pounds. And he's in the Guinness Book of World Records. All right? You see that little red strap? Really? You think that holds him? You think that little strap holds him? You think that, that person there, that, that they can hold chili? No way. I felt a tremor when I was standing beside these great big Hereford bulls at the Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo. Have you ever been there? And they've got them penned up in the convention center. You're looking at that thinking, my goodness, that animal is huge, and he's held by a little strap. And if he wanted to, he could take off and go just about anywhere he wanted to. But he doesn't. He's been trained. He's the picture of strength under control. And that's what gentleness is. It's not a question of, are you strong enough? It's a question of, are you under the control of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Have you harnessed the energy of your life the emotions of your life, the words and vocabulary of your life, the intelligence God has given you, has it been harnessed to do His will? 
This is not something that's optional for you. And you may be thinking, this is just not me, humble and gentle. I'm not by nature. Well, how many of us are by nature? See, maybe it goes against your nature. That's okay. God's doing something new in you, all right? Receive this. You want to live a life worthy of the calling you've gotten from Jesus. Be completely humble and gentle with your wife with your husband, with your children, with your employees, with your students, with your co-workers. Be completely humble and gentle. This will work for the CEO, for the lawyer, for the doctor. This will work for the surgeon. This will work for the colonel in the Air Force. This will work for you. You can go to work tomorrow no matter what your role. And you can live this out, and I know that you can. Because God became man in Jesus of Nazareth, and this is how he did it. This is how he lived his life. We don't have to be arrogant. We don't have to be belligerent. Our life does not have to contradict the gospel of Jesus Christ. It doesn't have to look opposite to Jesus. Your life needs to look like him. If you say that you know him, then you ought to walk as he walked. 1 John 2, 6. How did he walk? In gentleness and meekness. This works for everybody in the room. Now, you work it out, all right? But you be completely humble and gentle as a style of life, as the framework of who you are in the world. Number two, be patient. Bear with one another in love. That's number two. He's summarizing, okay? He's summarizing what it means to be living a life worthy of the calling. And he's using these words. Be humble, be gentle, be patient. Why would I be patient? I run out of patience. I'm not by nature a patient person. And yet the scripture is telling me we want you to be patient. The apostle Paul said that the Lord Jesus was so immensely patient with him as an example for those who believe. He said, a sinner like me, the Lord Jesus was so marvelously patient with me so that all believers could see the patience of the Lord Jesus as he dealt with me, Paul said. This patience that God has with you, you have noted before. You know God's patient with you. Sometimes you wonder if his patience is going to run out. Sometimes you suppose he has run out of patience for you. And sometimes you ask the question, when is God going to just, because I'm just not worth messing with anymore, you know? I have that feeling sometimes. And I wonder, God, your patience is amazing, isn't it? God's been patient with you. And therefore, in your walk in the world, living out your life in this world, living a life worthy of the gospel you received, you can be patient too. Now, brothers and sisters, if patience, gentleness, and humility are not true descriptors of who you are, God's got work to do in you. And I hate to say it, but you're not faithfully representing the Savior who died on the cross for you to save you. He wants you shaped into the image of His Son. God is at work in you, changing you from glory to glory into the image of His Son. 
So these should be true descriptors of who you are. Humility, gentleness, patience. Patience is a great word. I love it. It's a macro word, okay? It starts out with the Greek macro. And then it has thumia, from which, it, which relates to fire and passion. It's about the fire in a human being that is under the control of his spirit, under the control of the Savior. In other words, God knows he has this fire in you. Peter was a fiery person. Paul was a fiery person. They had a tremendous inner energy. And both of them were by nature impatient with people. That's how I see them both. And yet Paul is now saying, be patient. Why? Because Jesus is patient with me. And Paul learned this in this relationship with his Lord. Be long-suffering. Even though you want to explode. Even though you want to open your mouth and say the stuff that you know will do harm instead of good. You bite your tongue. Maybe you've been injured. Maybe you are being uh, insulted. But you hold back. Why would you hold back? Because the Savior went to the cross and he didn't utter a word when they hurled the insults at him. He didn't respond to them. He is your model. He's your example. The reason in part that all that is recorded so that you would know how to behave in the world, what it means to live a life worthy of the calling. And you know you need to bite your tongue. You don't need to open your mouth and let that stuff fly. It becomes, it has a life of its own. And once it escapes your lips, it is out there in the air and it poisons everything. And now you're thinking, man, I wish I hadn't said that. But you didn't stay under control. Your patience ran out and you exploded. And you did damage with it. And you can't take it back. Be patient. Stay under the control of the Lordship of Christ. In the fiery situation, when you feel like you've been insulted or disrespected, you maintain control because if you don't, it's bad for everybody. And particularly, is it bad for your witness as a follower of Jesus Christ? Be patient and bear with one another in love. Bear with one another. Stand straight and tall in your relationships with people. Bend, but don't break. Through patience, humility, and gentleness. Bear with that husband of yours, that wife of yours, that child of yours, that parent of yours, that neighbor of yours, that boss of yours. Bear with one another in love. You can stand tall in the place where you work, in the place you go to school. You can have a standing of confidence in your world. You can stand with strength and still bear with those around you. It takes bearing for people to put up with you. Really, it does. That spouse of yours, she knows your quirks. She knows you on the inside out. She understands who you are. And sometimes we just get frustrated with each other. And so the word is bear with 
one another. Keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Jesus Christ died on the cross to make peace. He has called you to be a peacemaker. He is the one who said, Blessed, oh how happy are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Would you like somebody to say, Wow, I believe that person's a child of God. You know what will prompt that? Is you making peace. You being a peacemaker. It's hard work. It's difficult work. Sometimes it's even dangerous work. It's a work that requires humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with one another. But God has called us to maintain the unity, to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Unity has always mattered more to God and to His Son, Jesus, than it has mattered to His church. It's always mattered more. When Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, prayed for us, he prayed that we would be one as he and the Father are one. Over and over again, he prayed that we would be one, that be a uni- unity and a oneness in the body of believers. And yet we get so crossways with each other so easily, and we jump out of fellowship with one another too quickly. We discover that we have feet of clay, that those folks we admire have feet of clay, that they're human just like us, and we are disappointed, and sometimes we jump out of fellowship with believers. It's important that we learn how to stay engaged with people even though they are imperfect like us. It's important because God is doing his shaping work in us as we stay connected to these imperfect people. And as we keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace, that is, through the Prince of Peace, through Jesus, he grows us and matures us into the people he intends for us to be so that we will follow him even in making peace as he made peace. Some place in your life needs a peacemaker. It may be in the marriage, it may be in the family, it may be at work or school. There's a place in your life where you need to make peace. And when you do, you are following the Savior who made peace for you. It is often costly, and yet it is the good work which He calls us to do. Yes. You have a calling, and I want you to remember your calling. The apostle mentions the calling in the first verse, and he mentions it again when he goes through the ones. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. In the ones, he mentions this, the hope of your calling. Remember your calling in hope. Brothers and sisters, There's too much hopelessness in the family of faith. There's too much distress and resignation. Too much anxiety and fear. We have a hope to which we are called that surpasses anything in this life and will carry us victoriously into the life to come. In this hope, 
to which we are called. We can walk in confidence and faith and do the work he has called us to do and be the people he has called us to be. Don't lose hope. Are you struggling with pain and sorrow? Don't lose hope. Has life not turned out like you expected? Don't lose hope. You have been called to the hope which is in Christ, a hope that transcends all others. Bow with me, please. As we bow our heads, I wonder if there's anyone in the room who needs to trust Jesus as Savior. Life's come unraveled. You know you're a sinner. You know you need help from God. Would you just pray, Lord Jesus? I know I'm a sinner. Please forgive me for my sin. I want you in my life. Would you make that prayer in faith, believing that he died on the cross for your sin and that he rose again from the dead? Would you make that prayer to him now? Would you trust in him? Maybe you're a Christian who's become discouraged and defeated by the forces that have come against you and you've kind of thrown in the towel. You've been called to a great hope. Would you just pray, Lord, I'm presenting my body again to you. This is my act of worship today. I want a new sense of the hope that I have through you. God, I want to remember my calling. I want to fulfill it. Maybe these qualities are difficult for you to hear. Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with each other. Would you pray, God, let these be the structure of my life, the framework of who I am. God, put them in the center of me. Shape my world around them. God, we look to you now. By your Holy Spirit, do your work in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.